Welcome to the God is Open podcast. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we're just going to be talking about basic categories of argumentation, arguments that you'll often hear in theological discussions or debates. There are different types of arguments that people can make to try to advocate their position. The first type we'll talk about is called logical argumentation. Logical argumentation usually falls under the realm of trying to show that some sort of belief is self-contradictory, that uh, it violates itself or something can't be true while another thing is also true. So logic has a series of what is known as axioms, and these are self-evident truths, truths that are true no matter what. And in the book Atheism, the Case Against God, these laws are talked about in detail because one of the atheist's complaints against Christianity is that a lot of Christians hold these self-contradictory beliefs, and so it was important for him to talk about these three laws. The first law is the law of identity. Anything is itself. A is A. God is God. You know, it's, it's just a self-evident truth. It, that cannot be false. If it were false, and the law of identity wasn't true, that means it wouldn't be false because A would not have to equal A and false would not have to equal false. You see, trying to deny these laws of logic ends up destroying any case you're trying to make against the laws of logic because you have to use the laws of logic to try to refute the laws of logic and it doesn't end up very well. So the second law is the law of excluded middle. Anything is either A or not A. A proposition is either true or false. There are some statements that are vague enough, whereas if you take it in one sense, it could be true, but if you take it in a different sense, that it could be false. But if you're trying to argue that that destroys the law of excluded middle, then you're falling prey to the fallacy of equivocation, where you're switching the definitions halfway through to try to get the results you want. In order to be consistent, you have to take the same phrase in the same manner, in the same sense, in both situations. So every proposition has to be either true or false. The last axiom we're going to talk about is the law of non-contradiction. Anything has to be true or false. They can't be both true and false. Again, if you're trying to use slights of words to try to say something's both true and false, you're still falling prey to the fallacy of equivocation. Equivocation is switching word definitions halfway through. Yeah, if you're trying to change the sense of the word or the sense of the meaning. So any proposition, it can't be both true and false at the same time in the same sense. So it's important to understand logical arguments and how they work and how they operate. Logical arguments should not be confused with rational arguments. You might say, you know, it's pretty rational for people to wear seatbelts. That's about rationale. It's about what's in your best interest and, you know, what kind of harms might result. That's a rational argument. It's not a logical argument. A logical argument is something contradicts or something violates what we would consider intelligibility. The logical arguments could be extended to omniscience. So here's George H. Smith making an argument against omniscience and free will. He says there's a violation there. He writes, The first problem with omniscience is that it cannot be reconciled with any theory of free will in man. If one believes in an omniscient being, one cannot consistently hold that man has volitional control over his actions. If God knows the future with infallible certainty, the future is predetermined, 
and MAND is impotent to change it. So notice that this is a logical argument. He's not saying that one series of events are preferable over another. He's saying that two ideas, two propositions, are contradictory between each other. One of the two has to go. And logic doesn't tell us what must be. Logic just tells us what cannot be. And he's saying that these two things, omniscience and free will, they violate each other. One of them has to go. So this argument he makes is actually pretty compelling. And one thing that open theists like to do is uh, redefine omniscience, which is definitely, you can do that, but you have to specify to the person you're talking to that you are. And, you know, or else you might be running into the fallacy of equivocation where you're just trying to change kind of word definitions. He's saying here that if God knows the future with infallible certainty, if he has complete exhaustive foreknowledge, then everything that man does has already been predetermined, and man is powerless to stop this. And we could even take this scenario further. Could God change the future? Could God do it? If he knows the future, could God change the future? You see, that's a logical argument. That's not a philosophical argument. That's not an emotional argument. That's just saying, you know, two things are contradictory. Free will and omniscience of all future events. One of them has to go. And whichever one goes, that's up to each individual user. But they just, they don't work with each other. So you notice the function of logic here. Logic here is not telling us what we have to believe. It's just telling us what beliefs we hold just don't work with each other. And I'm often in debates with uh, these Calvinists, and these Calvinists just, they don't understand logic. They don't understand rationale. And they instead try to make what they consider logical arguments, which aren't logical arguments at all. Here is one Calvinist's point to me. If God is able to control the future, then then the implication is that God does control the future. Really, that seems like a non-sequitur to me. But if the universe can run by itself, then the implication by logical deduction, really, logical deduction? Where's the logical deduction? Please, uh, you know, write out your steps of how the laws of logic lead to this deduction. And good and necessary consequences is that, that the universe is independent of God, and therefore there is something that is God's equal. God's equal? What, where are we coming up with the idea that nothing can be God's equal? That's not a logical argument. That has nothing to do with the basic laws of logic. That is a philosophical argument. That's an argument that's based in what God should be or what God shouldn't be or what kind of status God holds in the universe. And one thing you notice is the very idiosyncratic understanding of these weird terminologies. The equal with God, what does that mean? And that that's a very philosophical point, a philosophically defined word in this person's theology. And they want to just impose it on reality as if it was true reality. That has nothing to do with logic and everything to do with philosophy. And notice all the weird assumptions that are going into his argument. If something's independent of God, then it's God's equal. What the heck are you talking about? How is that rational? How is that logical? And how is that philosophically true? It seems just like assumptions all around. So on that note, we'll talk about philosophical arguments. Philosophical arguments usually are the arguments which are based in how things should be or how people think things are. And a lot of it deals with assumptions, assumptions about 
God and God's attributes and what kind of God would be the best God or what depending on whether God's good or not if God is good then he would do this or he wouldn't do that those are philosophical arguments and I went to a philosophy conference I went to the randomness conference and all these guys would get up and they would all just talk about their notions about how the universe works and you know how God operates in it and they're all just basing it off of just speculation and the problem with philosophical arguments is everyone has their own speculation and when you have no basis in what is valid and what is invalid and everyone's just coming off the top of their head what they think is the most true or the most beneficial then there's no way to really debate or discuss with other people in a convincing manner they have to hold fast your assumptions if you want to make any ground so when I'm talking to these philosophical theists, whether they be open theists or Calvinists, if I'm coming from a biblical perspective, a biblical background where I look at the text of the Bible and try to draw truths from that, and they reject that, the conversation is not going to go anywhere because they're going to come to me with a bunch of assumptions, assumptions that I don't necessarily buy into, in which they can't prove our correct assumptions. And they'll admit it. They'll say, yeah, we have to operate off of this and this and this assumption in order for my theory of events to work. So I was at the randomness conference, and there was a guy up on stage talking about a theory of time called presentism. And presentism is the idea that all that exists is now. And so in his theory of how it would work out is God just logs all historical events in God's own memory. And I talked to the guy about how that works. If if God were to forget an event, you know, there's no time travel because the past would not exist anymore. So there's no going back to retrieve that event. So if something's lost from God's mind and lost from collective history, that event is just gone. And he said that that is not a possibility because of his prior assumptions that God can't just lose history and history just can't be forgotten forever. And that was an assumption he didn't care to prove. He just, he didn't like the thought of that being true, that uh, God could just lose a memory and a historical event could be lost for all eternity. So it was his prior assumptions that were driving his belief systems, and he couldn't, he didn't have evidence for it other than his feelings of what should and should not be. Those are philosophical arguments. It's all philosophical. It's philosophical arguments. And those don't really appeal to me too much because philosophical arguments, as I said before, they don't have a common base in reality. They're, they're very subjective, and anyone could come to the debate with anything. And a lot of times people are talking past each other because they're just not on the same page. So a good example of a philosophical argument is when a Calvinist might just dismiss an open theist because the open theist says God doesn't know something. And they say, no, God knows everything. Well, yeah, where are you coming up with that? Um, where's your basis in thinking that God knows everything? It's not from the text of the Bible because, you know, usually these are just vague short statements. And they're not in the context of, you know, a metaphysical text describing God's knowledge in detail such that it can't preclude anything other than what they're supposing is their philosophy. So their philosophy really is baseless. And they're trying to use their philosophical presumptions just to dismiss some other argument. A subset of this philosophical argumentation is moral argumentation. 
you'll see off and on when Christianity is being debated, when Calvinism is being debated, people might say, oh, Calvinism is false because that would make God a sadist. You know, that's not really necessarily a biblical argument. That's not necessarily a logical argument. It's, it's definitely not a logical argument. It's more of a philosophical argument. It's starting with the assumption that that one, whatever the event is that's described, is sadism, and number two, that God is not a sadist. These moral arguments, these uh, arguments that appeal to God's goodness, they're, they're a little bit more convincing than standard philosophical arguments because the Bible is fairly unilateral in claiming that God is good, that God is benevolent, and God's looking out for man and trying to do righteousness. So you see that theme repeated over and over in the text in various contexts. But when dealing with these moralistic arguments, one thing we always need to be aware of is that, you know, this biblical standard of the goodness, the goodness that's described in the Bible of God, they're not necessarily our own standards. We're coming from a modern perspective, and our modern perspective might be warped comparative to a first century a rural farmer in the time of Jesus or even just a random peasant in this time of Moses. You know, our standards of morality are largely influenced by our culture, so what we might see as something that is that is harsh might be just standard fare for these people in previous times, and vice versa, of course. Maybe we're harsh in ways that, you know, they are not. A good example of this is adultery, having sex with a betrothed woman or a married woman. That was a death penalty in ancient Israel, and that was enforced up until even the time of Jesus, where we see Jesus approaching the crowd with the woman who is about to be stoned. Modern Americans probably would not be too keen to stone an adulterer, and a lot of modern Americans, they think nothing of adultery, like adultery is just just fine and good for everyone to do without any real ramifications except for maybe a divorce. But that definitely was not the perspective of ancient Israel. So we really have to be careful when we're talking about morality because not everyone's standards are the same and it would definitely be a mistake to project our modern standards on ancient cultures. The next type of argument we're going to talk about are the historical arguments. This is not to be confused with archaeological arguments. I mean, you can make the case that, you know, there's evidence for God in the ruins of Sodom that were found, in the ruins of Jericho that were found, in finding Mount Sinai at Jabal el-Laz. You could argue that there's archaeological evidence for the events of the Bible. That's not what we're talking about here. Historical evidence is more of the type of, oh, these are what the church fathers believed. And the Calvinists and the Catholics, they, they, they try to point to this long line of succession of church fathers in order to basically say that they're holding well-established beliefs in the Christian community. The problem with these types of historical arguments is that if there was anything very early in the history of the church that corrupted the church or led the church astray, uh, Catholicism is a great example of that because a lot of people, they're they're Protestants. They don't fall under this line of Catholicism and the Protestants had to create a break with the Catholic Church. And so you know if someone's going to claim history as a proof for their beliefs, are they Catholic who are claiming this? 
if they're not Catholic, then they have to admit that there was some corruption in the church at some point. And the question is, when did that corruption happen and to what extent? And where open theists are on pretty solid grounds is that it's pretty easy to show that the church fathers, especially the ones coming out of the Gentile world, they were all steeped in Platonism. They were all obsessed with these concepts that were very popular at that time, and they, they're the ones who brought that into the church. And so showing that happened very early on, it basically eliminates all these historical arguments that, you know, open theism is a new movement or, or, or Calvinism has deep roots that go all the way back to Augustine and before. You know, none of that really matters if there is strong corruption before the time frame that we're talking about. And also, none of that matters if Paul, the apostles, and the other authors of the Bible, if they didn't uh, buy into these classical attributes of God. And you know, that's also able to be shown. The next type of arguments that uh, are encountered often are these emotional arguments. Um, if open theism is true, then we can't trust God because God can change and we can't ever be assured of our salvation. You know, you kind of get the same sense that these fall into the same category as philosophical arguments. There are arguments that, you know, aren't necessarily based in reality. Why do we need to be secure 100% in whatever faith or whatever eternal salvation? You know, that's just trying to play on people's emotions. And trying to play on people's emotions, that's, that's not like a rational argument. That's trying to get them to discard rational argumentation in favor of of these gut reactions to what they may or may not think is a good or bad thing at that particular point in time. There's something in logic called the moralistic fallacy, and the moralistic fallacy is the fallacy that people adhere to when they try to base their ideas on what is real off of what they would like to be real. And so if someone doesn't like poverty and they, they see people like starving in Africa and they say, oh, that can't be true because, you know, that would be a bad thing and all these people would be starving and that would be so terrible. And so then they just choose not to believe it. The problem comes when we figure out that our beliefs and our desires and what we want to be real has zero effect on what is actually real. It's not like the Matrix where you could will and unwill things into existence based on, you know, what we kind of want at the time. No, that's a fallacy. We need to deal in reality rather than a made-up world. So emotional arguments, they're usually pretty terrible arguments unless you're trying to actually argue an emotional point. For example, if you could relate to someone and they're sad because maybe they had a child who died. And you could talk about what it would be like if your own child died. You're appealing to emotions, and but your point is an emotional point. You're trying to get someone to empathize and try to figure out what's going on in the emotional life of the other person. You'll see Old Testament prophets do this quite a lot. They'll say, you know, look at what God had to endure. Look at all his emotions that he's feeling over having to endure all these things. And they kind of set up the scenarios and and try to get people to actually think about how God is feeling based off of the actions of the people. And their their purpose is to try to convince these people to change their ways. They're not trying to argue uh, necessarily a factual point or 
trying to get give someone head knowledge of the history. They're trying to affect an emotional change and affect a personal change in the lives of their hearers. The last type of argumentation we are going to talk about is textual argumentation. This is arguments that come directly from the text of the Bible. You turn to a text in the Bible, you read it, and you try to figure out what it's saying and who it's saying it to and how it's saying what it is saying and various possibilities and what it could be saying. That's, that's textual analysis in the most basic sense. So Christina Hayes, she's a professor at Yale, and she really tries to look at what texts are trying to say. That's her focus. That's her what she tries to get all her students into in order to analyze the text. And here is a clip from her about reading the Bible biblically, textually. You're going to study the text's language, its vocabulary, its structure, its style, all of the clues. Look at the immediate context, the larger context, the way vocabulary is used elsewhere in the Bible, similar vocabulary. Um, anything that might shed light on the passage's meaning or a character's motivation. And then you're going to weigh the evidence and present your reading. And as in an English class, you'll want to minimize any external assumptions uh, that you bring to the text, anything that's not supported by the text. And often, the text will be truly ambiguous, precisely because there are gaps of information, or there are hints that pull in two different directions at times. That's part of the great artistry of the biblical text. That's what makes it so interpretable. And if that happens, then you may want to present various uh, dueling interpretations, various plausible interpretations of the passage based on the evidence in the text and say, you know, these sorts of things lead, would lead one to suppose that this is going on. But on the other hand, these textual clues lead to the following, you know, uh, plausible interpretation of what's going on. Uh, you'll find that the task of interpretation is easier if you keep in mind the following point. Not all statements in the Bible are equal. When a story is being told, information conveyed by the narrator is reliable, speech attributed to God is reliable. The words of individual characters are not necessarily reliable. Characters can be wrong, they can be misguided, they have limited perspective, and sometimes the narrator hints as much. Um, but the voice of the narrator is privileged, and that's part of the game we play when we read works of literature. We accept facts that are established by the narrator as facts that guide our interpretation. So Christina Hayes, she offers a common sense way to read the Bible. You're looking at what's being said and who it's being said to and, you know, who's speaking. Is it uh, God speaking? Is it the narrator? Is it people in the text? And it's really interesting when, like, Calvinists, like, take the text of the Bible. And they'll often take uh, the statement by an individual, like Samuel. In First Samuel 15, Samuel says, God does not change. Whereas... God in the text says that God changes, and the narrator in the text says God changes. Samuel's the only one not. And so what the Calvinists are doing is they are reversing this common sense way of reading the Bible where God is always correct, and the narrator's always correct, and they're elevating the words of like a person. And you see it also when the prophet Balaam is talking, and Balaam's a false prophet that God courses and a prophesying on his behalf and he also says God does not change but he's a character in the text and his words are elevated over Yahweh's own statements Yahweh's statements in 1 Samuel 15 as well as countless other places in the Bible God is often saying I'm the God who repents 
we have Jonah describing God's repentance, and this is right after the text says God repents, and he quotes Joel, and he says that one of God's primary attributes is God repents. And this is said in Joel by the narrator, but it's also said by Jonah, who's affirming what happens in the text. So using our reading comprehension skills, we understand that Jonah as a character truly understands Yahweh in the text. He truly understands his character, and he's able to even predict what God is going to do in certain circumstances due to his knowledge of God's character. So Jonah's correct. God repents. The text says he repents. The quote from Jonah is basically a copying of Joel 2.13. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So God's primary attribute, one of them, is that he repents. He thinks that he's going to perform disaster. He thinks that he's going to punish. But then he really repents and changes his mind. A huge assumption that the Calvinist types that they bring to the text of the Bible is that anytime they get these little off statements that, uh, like Samuel says, God is not a man, that he shouldn't repent, they believe he's speaking in some sort of highly metaphysical fashion some sort of fashion above the comprehension of the normal people where he's communicating some sort of metaphysics. And the text just doesn't support that at all. We don't see Samuel going into these deep metaphysical rants about, you know, the various attributes and how they interplay. And a more natural reading would be that Samuel, when he says God is not a man, that he should repent, that he's referring contextually to God repenting of making Saul king. So he's saying God is not going to repent of repenting of making Saul king. And that's how it bears out. Saul, he's he's sad that God repented of making him king, and he tries to convince Samuel otherwise, and that doesn't work. And that's when Samuel says that God's not going to repent, and God's not a man that he should repent. So the Calvinists want to try to make that a universal. The text just doesn't support that at all, especially in the context of both God and the narrator saying that God repents. It's just not warranted by the text at all. So 1 Samuel 15, that's a clear indication of Calvinists using their philosophy to override the text. They're using philosophical arguments to draw the narrative of the text into what they want the narrative of the text to be, a textual conclusion not supported by natural reading comprehension of the text. Yet you'll definitely find open theists using their philosophy to override the text in certain circumstances. There's this uh, Christological view that's part of open theism that says that everything has to be interpreted in light of the cross. You have the Greg Boyd types of doing that. And when they read Revelation, the Revelation of John, the Apocalypse of John, they kind of see it as spiritual warfare instead of you know, an Armageddon against mankind. They say, no, no people are not dying in this circumstance because, you know, that would violate this Christological view. And that I see as primarily a rejection of Jewish eschatology and and just the way Revelation was written, where there's going to be like a third of mankind getting killed and there'd be blood up to a horse's bridle. It's just really not supported by the text. N.T. writes another person who tries to take Revelation and try to make it you know, this kind of spiritual warfare rather than, you know, an actual apocalypse against mankind. But if you go back and you read Jewish eschatology, that's not what the day of the Lord is supposed to be. The day of the Lord is like a judgment against mankind. And you, especially in Old Testament eschatology, you really don't get any, like, spiritual warfare sense from those texts. It's all about, 
the here and now and people being judged for their actions on earth human beings so open theists they could fall prey to using their philosophy to override the text that's just something we need to be careful about it's it's not bad if people understand that that's what they're doing and some people understand that and they say you know the old testament they just weren't as enlightened as we are in today's world in today's sense and so they didn't have the clearest picture of the text you know and so in that fashion the philosophically based people they they say the old testament text or certain texts that they just don't quite like they say it's it's not as relevant to biblical theology as certain people would like to make it and you know that's valid but that's not textual that's not a textual argument and it's just dismissing the text of the bible in favor of philosophy which we have discussed and which is very speculative in nature so they could be right they could be wrong there's no way to prove it it's just based on their philosophical assumptions so in today's episode we talked about various arguments that can be made we talked about logical arguments we talked about moral arguments we talked about even rational arguments we talked about historical arguments and archaeological arguments and biblical arguments these are just types of arguments that we need to be aware of so when someone's coming to us with a question or an argument we have to understand where that argument is coming from and that will kind of drive how we're going to answer that question you know is it a question of the text is it a question of what is the text saying what a rational reader would understand from that text is it a question of philosophical assumptions that you just are not going to agree on in the first place or is it a question of a logical fallacy or a logical argument do they have a point and sometimes they do sometimes they know what they're talking about understanding these types of arguments and where these arguments are coming from and and how they're structured will also help our own beliefs we'll understand how to argue or how to understand things and how to understand other people's points of view if someone's coming to you from a very different philosophical assumption you're probably not going to gain any headway unless that's resolved but you're going to have to find some sort of common basis in philosophy in order to do it reading comprehension is a lot easier because you know the text doesn't have unlimited leeway especially when you know normal readers can be consulted about text to try to figure out what's going on there is a standard of common sense that prevails even against irrational positions on the text and so that's one of the reasons i like to stick with the biblical arguments they're a lot easier to make it's a lot easier to look at where people are coming from rather than forming your own philosophical system to impose upon the bible I hope you liked today's podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put them on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on our God is Open Facebook companion page for the podcast. Thank you for listening.